Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hello, welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast, and you are in for a treat today, let me tell you. Thane Kreiner is the director of Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, which is where I work on campus, and it's safe to say that Thane is pretty much my personal hero. Ever since I started the show, I knew I wanted to get him on, and I was just so thrilled when he was kind enough to do an interview with me. As executive director of Miller Center, Kreiner sets the vision and trajectory for the programs that empower students and entrepreneurs to serve hundreds of millions of people around the globe. So Miller Center's primary flagship program is the Global Social Benefit Institute, which has a cohort every year that go through the accelerator program. And then I also worked mostly on uh, videos for both that program as well as the uh, online version of that program. And the goal is to help social entrepreneurs scale their impact and prepare to raise investment. But back to Thane. Thane got his start in biotech and he attended UT Austin and studied chemistry and then got both a PhD in neuroscience and an MBA from Stanford. Uh, No big deal. After that, he worked at 14 years for a pioneering DNA sequencing company called Affymetrics, which was a big deal back then. And after that, he started four of his own companies. And incredibly, these four were all in the span of just three years. Uh, Talk about a busy schedule. Honestly, just hearing the story of how Thane has accomplished all of this so far in his career and just has such a heart to give back and help millions and millions of people around the world is an incredible journey, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I know that you will too. It's definitely one of my personal favorites. And one final piece of news regarding Thane is that he has just recently, as of the last week of October 2018, come out with a new book. It's a memoir titled Composition of Life, a memoir of science and spirituality. And you can check it out with a link in the description of this podcast or on my website, VoicesOfSantaClara.com. I'm really looking forward to reading it. I was a little worried when we started out the interview because there was a lawnmower guy who was mowing the lawn right outside, and if you've uh, been to Santa Clara, you know that they have to mow the lawns about twice per week to keep them at the perfect one-inch height all the time, but fortunately, uh, it didn't take too long, and we got underway. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Executive Director of Miller Center, Thane Kreiner. I'm excited to be here today with Thane Kreiner, and I'd love to start out with diving, actually. So um, (laughs) how did you 
get into diving what is it about the ocean that appeals um, to you and what are some like experiences or highlights you've had yeah um well i love being underwater literally um some people when uh, they think about diving they say they feel claustrophobic and for me it's exactly the opposite i feel completely free um you know i'm neutrally buoyant so i can sort of be wherever i want i'm flowing with the currents uh the beauty of creation under the water just completely astounds me the biodiversity the different species of not just of fish but of, of corals and nudibranchs and other kinds of things it, it is infinitely fascinating to me so so i love it the way that i started was actually i've always loved the water since i was a, a small kid and uh, swam a lot when i was growing up and um in college not competitively um and when i would go on vacation and in places where there were reefs and i was snorkeling i always felt trapped on the surface so when i got close to finishing my mba uh, back in 1994 then i promised myself i would um i would uh get myself certified for diving. And I decided to do it in a place where if I didn't like it there, I wouldn't like it anywhere. Uh, so I actually got certified um, uh, Taviuni as a small island uh, in Fiji. Um, and it was beautiful. One of the greatest dives ever is the Great White Wall, which is white, soft corals uh, in this channel, uh, Suva Suva Straits. And it was just it was just amazing. Um, so um, since then, I've been hooked and go on a couple dive trips a year. Hmm. Awesome. So you studied chemistry in undergraduate um, at UT Austin in, in Texas. So what were your career plans during that time in your life? Like, what were you thinking about for your future? I had no career plans. I mean, it's very different uh, today than it was um, back then. Um, I studied chemistry because I was putting myself through college and I won a scholarship uh, that paid a thousand dollars a year it doesn't sound like a lot but it was back then if i studied chemistry in another scholarship uh, that i had another thousand dollars a year if i stayed in texas so the decision to study chemistry at ut austin made a lot of economic sense for me um, putting myself through college and i had done well on science in high school and taken all the classes that were available and then my senior year in high school i had classes that i kind of made up advanced independent math and advanced independent biology so um, it was basically, you know, a major that sort of came to me um, for, for economic reasons. And um, because I placed out of a lot of classes, I, I was able to take a huge number of electives my junior and senior year. I wasn't going to let the scholarships go to waste and graduate early or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really during my um, uh, senior year when I took a neurobiology class that mm -hmm. I got very interested in neuroscience. And it was kind of a convergence of how the human brain works, why some people think differently than others, causes of mental illness, uh, crazy um, authoritarians like Hitler and now I'll say Trump. Um, how did they come to be that way? And so I was really interested in um, the brain and how it connected to the mind. And that's what led me to coming out to California uh, for my graduate studies. Mm -hmm. So you got multiple graduate degrees. So I guess what was the decision process like of like did you did you ever consider going to work in the private sector instead of getting another degree or like why did why stay in academia yes yeah. 
as I uh, finished my undergraduate degree at UT Austin um, and knew that I wanted to continue learning, uh, I applied for graduate schools in neurosciences, um, and I also knew that I wanted to come to California. Uh, so I applied for graduate school in California, only to Stanford and UCSD, uh, and uh, I love the investigator uh, at Stanford uh, who I interviewed with uh, was young investigator, very, very promising. He had done some of the early experiments um, at uh, Genentech uh, with uh, gene splicing and um, that they really led to the whole recombinant DNA revolution. And he convinced me in an eight o'clock in the morning meeting in the lab that he was just setting up that if I wanted to understand how the human brain worked, he needed to start with a single neuron. And so he was studying a, a marine mollusk. Uh, so there's a connection back to the ocean there too, obviously, um, called the Plesia californica. It was actually just in the news a, a few weeks ago that you can take um, RNA from a neuron and put it into another neuron. And the, the um, recipient, uh, a sea slug, then has memories that it never experienced. Mm. So you can actually move memories with messenger RNA. It's just mm. totally fascinating fascinating thing. Anyway, um, we were studying um, how um, these neurons package uh, neuropeptides into secretory vesicles and how they're traffic trafficked along the axons of, of uh, the neurons. And um, that's what I studied as a, an under, or as a graduate student at Stanford was peptidergic secretory vesicle trafficking in um, Aplesia californica. Huh. <laughs> Which, <laughs> wow. The, how, how did you transition from getting getting that degree into, um, I know you got like an MBA, but then into the yeah. private sector. Why did you, why did I decision? do that? Yeah. Well, so Richard Scheller, who was my thesis advisor at Stanford, was amazing. He was a natural leader. He really had a talent for leadership and the lab, uh, all it was highly productive. Everybody was having a lot of fun. There was a, a great sense of teamwork. You know, I graduated with five different publications, which is which is a lot for a, a doctoral degree. Um, and I finished in four, a little over four years too. So very, very highly productive lab. I knew I wanted to stay in California, and I was going trying to recapitulate that experience in my postdoc uh, um, placement. And at the time when you got a PhD from a prestigious university like Stanford, the expectation of everybody, my thesis advisory committee, Richard, uh, my colleagues, uh, was that I, I was going to set up my own lab somewhere. So I was definitely very much on the academic track then. Um, but when I did my postdoc, it was a very different experience. It was another young investigator, uh, but this person didn't have the natural leadership talents that Richard did. And as a consequence, the lab was not very productive, but the people were equally smart. We had the same access to technology. And so the, the missing ingredient was really leadership. And I started filling this gap um, because it needed to be filled. There was this crazy guy uh, who had dropped LSD, Kerry Mollison invented PCR, right? I don't know if you guys hear that story when you talk about PCR and the invention of it, but he basically thought about this when he, when he was uh, on an acid trip in Santa Cruz. And so this came out and it was published. And um, I um, looked at it and I said, hey, this PCR technology might be really useful for what we're doing. We should have a conversation about it. And the, the lab uh, uh, principal investigator was, was focused on her own research. And so we started having these 
you know, lab meetings and talking about PCR and how to use it. And I thought, hmm, maybe I'm not meant for the academic track. And so I, uh, I decided uh, to explore different career options and went through what we now call vocational discernment for about 18 months, talking to a lot of different people um, in different parts of the biotech industry. So I, I wanted at that time uh, and for many years afterwards to apply science to help people. And I saw biotechnology and pharmaceutical as a way to do that. Um, so I said, well, what are different ways that I might be able to leverage my own talents mm -hmm. to do that as a researcher um, or as a manager or a leader? And that's what led me to apply for an M uh, MBA program uh, at the Stanford GSB. Uh, I got my uh, MBA in 1994, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And um, then I spent 17 years in the private sector building and leading life sciences companies. Yeah, so you, for the first chunk of that, it was a one company, Affymetrics, right? Mm -hmm. So were there any m really memorable experiences from that time or periods that helped kind of shape you into who yeah. you are? How long do we have? <laughs> I mean, I could, uh, I, I often tell my students that I could teach pretty much any course in business school based on my experiences at oh. Affymetrics. It was incredibly formative. I learned so many things that you can't learn in class um, just from the experience of being in a very, very high growth uh, company um, that had an incredibly innovative, disruptive technology. Uh, so I actually started as an intern there between my first and second year of business school and I wrote the private placement memorandum and I had no idea what that was while I was doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of learned uh, uh, through the process of practicing how do you prepare uh, uh, an investment document for private investors, what we were doing, all about cap tables, who owns what of the company, you know, why they were doing it, what their motivations were. And that leveraged both my writing skills based on some of my um, undergraduate electives, writing poetry and creative writing, as well as my science background, um, and really brought those things together. And I learned about how to, how to capitalize and finance companies uh, in, in the process of doing that. So that was a formative experience as an intern. And then I was project manager for launching um, the, the platform technology we were creating, which was uh, DNA chip technology. So using semiconductor manufacturing methods, but instead of etching circuits um, on, on the wafers, um, building strands of DNA in a massively parallel fashion. And what that enabled us to do is um, really revolutionize biomedical research, both in private sector and in academic medical research centers. Instead of looking at things one gene at a time, all of a sudden research, researchers could look at at the entire human genome, um, either the expression of it or um, or the DNA itself, the the, the encoding genes, and um, that was that was revolutionary. Getting the platform together uh, required me to interact with people from a, a wide variety of different disciplines that I knew nothing about: mm -hmm. software coding, instrument design and manufacturing, quality assurance, manufacturing. I'd never done any of those things. Marketing. Don't forget the labels on the product. All of these kinds of things. So um, I was project manager, and um, uh, it was it was just. A phenomenal experience learning how to lead by influence rather than by authority mm -hmm. and to me that's one of the biggest lessons in my life is that you're much more effective um, in influencing people and motivating them towards common goals than telling them what to do nobody 
most people don't like to be told what to do, I'll say. Most people um, actually resent that and a lot of defensive mechanisms come up. And then I was part of the IPO, uh, which was incredible. I mean, I could go on all day, uh, Gavin, talking about my formative experiences at Affymetrics. I set up the business in China, set up the business in Japan. I was on uh, in China. We were dealing with top-level government officials, so we really took a, a top-down approach there. I was uh, working with a consultant who had been on the first plane over to China with Henry Kissinger. Uh, so she had super high level government con uh, uh, contacts and we got our technology written into one of their five-year plans. Um, and then it just completed our business in China, just completely took off um, based on some of the ethical issues that came up uh, regarding the use of uh, a chip that could look at an entire human genome, um, then we formed an ethics advisory committee, which I led uh, for the entire time I was there from, from we f when we formed it, which was, I think, 1996, uh, until I left in 2007. And that led us to ask some really profound questions about who is responsible for the use of genetic information. Is it the manufacturer of the technology uh, or is it the customer who buys it? What's our obligation in terms of due diligence? Is this a bona fide? research customer or is it someone who might want to use genetic information for nefarious purposes that led us into public policy discussions about um, whether or not uh, people uh, people's genetic information should be private uh, and so I was for a time a, a registered lobbyist on Capitol Hill uh, advocating for passage of the genetic information non-discrimination act uh, working on both sides of the aisle so that was an incredible experience same message, different people. Um, how do you how do you remain authentic and and tell the story uh, in ways that the bill could eventually be passed? The truth is, it didn't get passed until two thousand and eight after I had already left Affymetrics. Um, so yeah, all kinds wow. of amazing experiences. Wow! And then you founded multiple companies in the next couple of years. So what was that period like? weren't you running? multiple of them at the same time yeah. as well? How, yeah. does, how does one do that? It was a little crazy. Um, so I, I left Affymetrics um, in 2007, which was a, a year after one of the, the most um, influential uh, mentors in my life, Sue Siegel, who had been our president from um, 1998 until 2006. Uh, and she left because the, the company, like many technology-centric companies, um, became very focused on what we could do with our technology and what, what we call the not invented here syndrome. And there were other competitors starting to emerge then, uh, some of whom um, Sue and I and others thought we should acquire to broaden our portfolio of technologies. But we really couldn't get the R&D organization, um, which was very heavily funded, um, to develop the applications our customers wanted. So Sue left. And about a year later, I left because we hired a new president um, who, frankly, um, did not have the integrity that, and I didn't want to work for someone who I didn't feel had high integrity. And my plan was to take a year off. So my plan was not to go and start companies. It was to take a year off and go through another long vocational discernment process and figure out what I wanted to do as sort of a next chapter in my life. Um, and 
then a funny thing happened. I got a phone call from a partner at Kleiner Perkins, uh, which is one of the best known uh, VC firms in the world. And they said, we have found this really interesting technology. Uh, can you come in and have a conversation with us about it? And so I told one of my running buddies, you know, hey, Kleiner called the other day because we were talking about what are you going to do next? And, and they're like, well, you're going to call back. And it's like, mm, I don't really want to work right now. I want to go through this discernment process. And, you know, when one of the top VC firms in the world calls, you might want to call back just in case you ever want to do something else, right? It kind of makes sense. So I did, and I went in for what was supposed to be a 45-minute conversation, and we ended up whiteboarding like three different strategies for commercializing uh, this technology, which was uh, called induced pluripotent stem cells, where you basically take a skin cell from anyone and then reprogram it to behave like an embryonic stem cell, but you don't have to use an embryo at all. So there's no ethics issues with it. You're not using human embryos. You're basically just reprogramming something. And the in our imaginations, the idea was that um, you could take these cells and then regenerate um, any organ that you wanted for someone and then you won't have organ rejection. So if someone needed a new heart, you'd grow your own heart from your skin cells or liver. You'd grow your a new liver from your own skin cells, et cetera. So really fascinating technology. Um, and I was consulting with them for a few months. And then right around um, the holiday season uh, that year, 2007, they asked me to be startup CEO. And I'd never done that before. Um, I was not totally clear exactly what was going to be involved from starting it from zero. Uh, but I came on board, uh, licensed the intellectual property out of uh, Japan, which was really um, challenging because it was kind of a national treasure. And um, the one of the inventors ended up getting a Nobel Prize a few years later. Um, that was a fascinating experience. Built the team, raised the first round of funding, got things going. And then as we started elucidating the strategy uh, more and understanding um, for me, particularly what the venture capitalist wanted in terms of financial returns and in what time period, it became clear that um, the uh, regenerative medicine, the true regenerative medicine of, of replacing one's organs with, uh, with newly generated ones from your skin cells was going to take 15 or 20 years. And that horizon was just outside of reasonable venture return expectations. So we, we honed in fairly quickly on the best use of the technology was probably as a platform for pharmaceutical um, drug discovery, which really wasn't my background. Um, and so about the same time, I was talking to um, one of my former customers from Affymetrics who does cancer research at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center uh, in Seattle. He's a pediatric neuro-oncologist. Talk about a hard job when 80% of your uh, your patients die and they're, they're all children. Uh, but he's phenomenal at it. And he also does really great research. And he had come up with the technology uh, for empirically testing whether a cancer drug would work for a patient's tumor. And so we decided to start a company out of, out of Hutch um, and did that. And in parallel with that, um, uh, Sue Siegel had gone to more Davidow Ventures uh, and was a partner there. 
And they had generated an idea for a telemedicine company. And so I was consulting for them, working with my friend Jim on starting uh, with the presage genomics. Um, and so those things kind of overlapped. Uh, presage, it became very um, apparent that for the company to work, it was much more biology focused than technology focused. And it needed to be in Seattle. And I didn't want to move to Seattle, even though I was I was born there. Um, and um, so I... I Helped hire a new CEO for that, president for that, um, and then with a, a friend who had been on my thesis advisory committee, uh, Corey Goodman, uh, we started what's now Second Genome, which is a human microbiome company. Um, and so that takes me up to Santa Clara. Those yeah. were the four companies I started yeah, in wow. three years. So. Wow, that's crazy. And had social entrepreneurship and having a societal impact, had that always been like a part of you inside you? And, and then when you transitioned into your, your job as director here at Miller Center like was that was that just a continuation of something or were you were you changing course at all well it's interesting because the, the answers sort of yes and no or or yes and both um, so as I said earlier one of when I went to business school one of my aspirations was to apply science uh, and technology to help people and particularly in, in biomedical research and, and biotechnology there seem to be a lot of ways to do that there's a lot of devastating diseases and conditions that uh, can be dramatically improved with technology and that was very appealing to me to use my scientific background and business together to um, to improve the quality of people's lives in the process of starting four companies, um, one of the things that I, I started noticing was that um, my my drive was really about how the science and technology were going to help people. Um, but my job as CEO uh, was to maximize financial returns for the venture capitalist and um, their limited partner investors. And I knew that I could do that, but it wasn't exciting to me, um, if that makes sense. It was, you know, something to celebrate when Affymetrics went public. It was, you know, something to celebrate when you got a big deal. Um, but what the venture capitalists, what their job is, is to create, you know, great returns for their investors. That's, that's, that's what they do. And that just really didn't, didn't get me going. So in the process of this, you know, founding these companies, I was starting to, um, ruminate on what do I really want to do with my life and um, I had imagined uh, so the yes part is I had imagined that at some part at some point in my life when um, one of the companies I founded had a liquidity event and I didn't have to worry about my retirement and things like that I would do something else I would take another step like I'd taken when I went to business school like I'd taken when I left Affymetrics I um, started founding companies that I I would do something else that would just be focused on doing good um, but I didn't really know what that was um, and I had all kinds of ideas going through my head I'd been a child advocate for 10 years was it focused on children I'd been an AIDS buddy for about 10 years before that uh, helping helping people die so I really wasn't sure um, and then Santa Clara came up uh, completely serendipitously, um, and uh, uh, I uh, the, the way that it happened, which is probably your next question, is that I had um, joined um, the ethics advisory, or sorry, the Markula Center advisory board here because Kirk Hansen had been one of my professors at Stanford Business School, and we started packaging the human genome on a chip at Affymetrics. Um, then. Um, 
these ethics issues came up and Kirk and I started talking. He said, well, do you want to be part of our business ethics partnership that we're doing at Markula Center? And I said, sure. And then after a couple of years, he said, do you want to be on my advisory board at Markula Center? And I said, sure. And then a couple of years later, he said, we're trying to really figure out what our strategy looks like. You're really good strategically. Uh, do you want to be on our uh, executive committee? And so I said, yes, because I like Kirk and I was having fun. And so really all that I knew about Santa Clara was the Markula Center. And we were at uh, an executive committee meeting um, at Hobie's on Stevens Creek. And someone said what was then... The Center for Science, Technology, and Society is looking for a new executive director. Mm -hmm. And it was like, trite as it sounds, a little light bulb went off in my head. And I went and I looked at the website, which was absolutely terrible then, <laughs> um, and found this little thing called GSBI. And it was about you know Silicon Valley executives who had started and built companies serving as mentors for social enterprises, providing clean water, uh, off-grid energy, nutrition, education, health in the developing world. And I thought, that is so cool. That's like something I could imagine doing for a long time. And so I went and talked to the interim provost and said, hey, you know, I'm not the typical candidate. I'm not really an academic, despite looking like one with the PhD. I'm, I'm much more of, you know, an entrepreneur. That's what I've been doing for the last 17 years. Um, doesn't make sense for me to apply. And uh, he said, yes. So I applied, went through the interview process, um, didn't hear anything for a while because as I've learned, academia moves much more slowly than the startup world. And it was actually during that period that I got the seed round funding for what's now Second Genome. And two weeks after I shook a venture capitalist uh, hand and took uh, the $1.2 million seed round, Father Eng called me and, and asked me to come to Santa Clara. Mm -hmm. And here I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many gigantic problems in the world from climate change to, to oceans to poverty and inequality and human rights. Are you optimistic about the future? And if so, why? Mm. Um, that is a hard question. I, there are days when I'm very optimistic because I have seen and been in the field a lot with social enterprises and I can see how um, community-level community, community level engagement can really create transformative change and how that can scale to address problems of climate change by creating resilience to it in the poor communities that are most affected. I've seen how um, fairly simple um, technologies like solar-powered lanterns can have multi-dimensional impacts on the quality of life and economically empower women who are most of the world's poor. Um, and and this program we're doing with um, social enterprises focused on refugees, migrants, and human trafficking survivors has opened this whole new um, uh, way uh, uh, of seeing how entrepreneurship can serve the most vulnerable among our common human family. So I think the principles of, of social entrepreneurship hold enormous promise. At, at the same time, there are what I would say very um, troubling um, political wins that um, could completely destroy or devastate um, the planet, humanity, and and everything else um, around us. So it's a it's a, a frightening time. I think is a fair thing to say in in at least my history um, of, of of being a human being. Mm -hmm. hmm. How do you make decisions on how to spend your time? Like, do you believe in like a work-life balance, or how, how, how do you know what what you're going to do in a in a day or in a mm. period of time? 
I believe in a work-life balance. I'm not sure that I exemplify it. And I, I think one of the things I would say is that um, that my life and my work are, are very integrated. Um, so it, there's not a clear boundary like I'm at work, um, I'm I'm at life, right? <laughs> work is a vital part of my life. I'm, I'm doing something that I find immensely fulfilling and the opportunity to work with the, these um, social entrepreneurs and with the Global Social Benefit Fellows uh, is extraordinarily rewarding to me um, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Um, that's a huge part of my life. Um, taking care of myself is also important. I try to exercise every day. Um, I grow a lot of the food that um, I eat, um, which which is important. I try to practice um, um, permaculture on the property that my husband and I um, live on in Sebastopol. Um, so I, I try to I, I try to have uh, uh, balance, but you know, honestly, I'm working harder now than I ever have in my life because um, there's so many opportunities that I, I can't stop thinking about them. So even when I'm gardening, part of my brain is still thinking about. What else could we do to have greater impact in the world? Hmm. What are you most proud of in your career up to this point? Oh, boy. Um, I would probably say the Global Social Benefit Fellowship. Um, if, if I had to pick one thing, I'm proud of, of, of lots of things. Um, but when we imagined this program, with Keith, when Keith Warner and I started contemplating um, how we could create a transformative social justice learning experience. It was Memorial Day of 2011. We launched the program, a pilot program in 2012. And, you know, we learn, we've learned every year. We continue learning. But the, what the program ha has done in terms of offering these transformative experiences to high potential undergraduates is it's phenomenal it's beyond what i imagined i mean we've had eight fulbrights and three valedictorians come out of the fellowship and i feel like all of the these young leaders are my children hmm. right so i i'm now at like over a hundred a hundred children and it's it's just phenomenal when i hear their stories and and i'm so proud of them um and um to think that you know this was an idea we we scratched out on a few you know emails over memorial day weekend that long ago it's it's just it's remarkable hmm. I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. Sure. So, first of all, do you have any favorite place that you've traveled? Home. <laughs> My favorite place in the world is home. Um, you know, other than that, for diving underwater, Palau. Uh, my husband and I go to France quite frequently. We love the food, the wine, the ethic of, of being local um, and the layers and layers of history. Um, I love visiting with social entrepreneurs in Africa, uh, it's, that's really rewarding for me too. Hmm. So it's hard to just pick one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you could give a piece of advice to a first year student coming into Santa Clara, what would you tell them? A piece of advice to a first year student at Santa Clara, um, follow your heart. Are there any books that you that have either had a big influence in your life or that you enjoy giving away and recommending to other people? For staying um, flexible in old age, uh, um, there's a great little book called Yin Yoga, um, which has been extraordinarily helpful in dealing with things that a lot of people go to um, have surgery on their lower back, et cetera, when they start getting sciatica from sitting around too much. Um, so, so that's an incredibly um, 
incredibly powerful uh, book for me. Um, for social entrepreneurship, I often recommend Getting Beyond Better, Sally Osberg and Ro Roger Martin's book, I think it is uh, very, very uh, powerful and, and helps a, a lot of people understand how it's different than social advocacy or um, social services kinds of organizations um, and how it really combines entrepreneurship. Probably one of the most profound books for me um, from a long time ago was um, uh, Milan Kundera's uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being. And I see a lot of undergraduates in particular sort of struggling with, do I choose this option or that option and not wanting to make the wrong choice. And when you read Unbearable Lightness of Being, then um, that sort of lifts, <laughs> lifts away the, the, the weight of, and gravity of, of making choices. So the answer on how to make it, the, the decision is a pretty simple one is consider only the good alternatives. Um, there's no point in considering the bad alternatives. Consider only the good alternatives and then think about which one you would be saddest if you didn't pursue. And that's the one that you should pursue. Mm -hmm. And that's Ignatian. Hmm. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Well, at this moment, I would say be civil. I think the, the lack of civility in, in public discourse and with each other is one of the most frightening things to me um, in the world today. I talked about that earlier. And there's no one in the world that any of us agrees with all of the time. Um, and you think about that with your family, your loved ones, whoever they are, there are things that people, reasonable people will differ on a variety of things. If we start saying, you don't agree with me about this particular issue, so I'm not going to be your friend, I'm not going to work with you on other issues that we do agree, there's no fabric for society anymore. So, so I think being civil and listening to each other and finding common ground is really the only path forward. And for me, um, the, the common ground is, is about the planet and humanity and, um, and taking care of, of uh, this amazing creation that we're fortunate to live in, including the oceans. Mm -hmm. yeah, and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? An ideal Saturday uh, is uh, getting up in the morning, doing some yoga on my yoga platform, watching the sunrise over Mount St. Helena, going for a swim in my pool, having breakfast with Steve, my husband, uh, then working out in the garden for a few hours, uh, then doing some writing um, in the afternoon, and then making a nice dinner uh, together with a bottle of local wine. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this interview. Thank you, Gavin. I hope, uh, I hope that your listeners will find it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. You can check out VoicesOfSantaClara.com. Visit the Voices of Santa Clara Facebook page and send me a message. Let me know what you thought. Thanks so much. See you next time.